So we live, we live in a high rise apartment, a little kind of Western suburb. We live on the widest stretch of freeway in the country. So it's interstate 10, which goes Jacksonville to, uh, to Los Angeles. Yeah. So it's a stretch of freeway in the world, total of 26 lanes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when I get on that thing, I feel like I'm getting on a NASCAR track because you're in Texas. Everybody's driving a pickup truck. People who drive pickup trucks, I think it's because they sit up a little bit, you know, man, they, it's so aggressive. <laughs> and it just feel like I'm taking my life in my hands every time I, I get on that freeway. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is season one, episode three, Hope. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. So I teach at a university where every year, over 30,000 students show up to work their way towards a college degree. It's a really funny time of life for them. Most of them couldn't even tell you where they're going to be living just a year from now. It involves an incredible amount of uncertainty. Their futures hang in the balance while they sit through lectures, grind through homework, apply for job after job, and all while paying tuition for the privilege of doing all of this. So why do they do it? Well, it's because they believe it will lead them to a future that they want, a job they enjoy and and something that provides a good living too. There's no guarantee, of course, that it will get them where they wanna go. So why put in so much effort? Well, it's because they have hope. The future they see for themselves inspires them to keep going and finding their way through. But not everyone feels hope like that. For a wide range of reasons, many don't have hope for a well-paid job or even a job they enjoy. If we look, we can see missing hope in all kinds of places. Some parents lack hope because their child is struggling with a chronic illness. Some families don't even know how they'll buy groceries next week. Some don't even have a home. Today, we're gonna chart a career of offering hope to people. David Williams started out as the executive director of the Houston Food Bank at a time when it was on the brink of failure. From there, he went on to be the chief operating officer of Habitat for Humanity, then CEO for the National Make-A-Wish Foundation. He went from there to Genesis Works, a cutting-edge social venture operating throughout the country to help teenagers go beyond high school to college and to successful careers. That's where he was at the time of this interview with him. But he's now taken a new role as CEO at Shelters to Shutters, an organization that transitions individuals and families from homelessness to self-sufficiency by using the real estate industry to give employment and housing opportunities. Over his career, David has become an expert in giving people hope. And I'm so excited to share this interview with you so that we can learn a thing or two about why hope matters and how we can share it with others. To begin our hopeful journey, let's start with a story about Hector. So at Genesis Works, we work with low-income high school students and through training, a paid internship and mentoring, help them break the cycle of poverty and help them achieve career success. We work with what we call the quiet middle. Again, low-income students, predominantly students of color, uh, 
And students that are typically in that B to C range in terms of their grades. And all that is to say that these are students that do not necessarily have a vision for their future in place that would include things like college and and a professional career. Hector was someone who was one of the first graduates of the Genesis Works program. And he told me his story. And his his story essentially was he grew up in in a pretty tough part, east side of Houston, and, and through his school, learned about Genesis Works, applied, was accepted, and, and initially decided he wanted to participate, but then he needed the money. His family needed the money. And so he turned it down because he got a job uh, working at Subway, making sandwiches. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, a couple weeks later, uh, Hector was robbed at gunpoint, at which point it made him rethink this, the, the decision that he had made. And so he went back to Genesis Works and said, hey, I would really like to apply. I would like, really like to be in the program. The long and the short of it is he was put back in the program, did his internship. As a result of the mentoring and training and internship, he decided to go to college. He did not think he was college material. He went and was accepted while in college, heard about a, an internship, a college internship with Hewlett Packard. He applied and was accepted. That internship led to an offer from Hewlett Packard, which he took. And as I was speaking to him that day, he had just resigned after a 10-year career with Hewlett Packard because he took a position with a technology company in Austin. And he showed me a picture of his wife and his son and his new house. But he also showed me a picture of the house that he grew up in and the house that he still goes to visit when he sees his, his mom and dad. And of course, when he goes on those visits, he sees a lot of the guys that he hung out with in that neighborhood who are still there and whose stories are not as inspiring as Hector. They're in a very, very different place uh, than he is. And, and his comment to me was, you know, if not for this program, their story would be my story. He is a person who was able to very quickly in a, in a five-minute period of time just talk about how his life had totally changed, that the trajectory of his life was so different than what he could have possibly imagined 15 years earlier. The main point was, and let me tell you, my son's childhood and my son's future is going to be very different than mm-hmm. what was. And, and to me, that's when it all came together of the power of this program, of what, of what hope for a better future really means. Yeah, that is an amazing story. That's awesome and good for Hector. And, you know, when you think about it, it's not stopping there with his son, right? I mean, this change in his life is cascading right. out in all kinds of ways that, that he probably doesn't even see. That's exactly right. And that's the power of, well, it's the power of impacting one person. You're really impacting more than one person. And a lot of times you know, and a lot of times you don't. Yeah. That story about Hector is a great illustration of the power of hope, but I want to lay a groundwork so we have an even better understanding of what hope really is. Psychologist Charles Snyder describes hope as a kind of pathfinding. We use hope to discover and pursue a better life for ourselves. People who hope generally have much better outcomes in their lives. 
This, by the way, is different than mere optimism. While there's definitely an overlap, Snyder's idea of hope is bigger, and it gives us deeper insight. When we hope, we can not only see a better future for ourselves, but we also see a way to get there. Snyder calls this pathways thinking. What Hector got at Genesis Works was the ability to see a new path, not just an imagined destination. And notice that he didn't have to have the whole path at once. He simply had to see a promising path that he had confidence he could follow. The thing about the Genesis Works program is that the path is tried and true. It works for pretty much every kid who participates. They really do become different people. So the question that I, I always ask students is, if I had met you a year earlier, uh, tell me the person that I would be meeting. And to a person, you know, they will talk about, oh, I, I, I don't know if I would even be confident enough to carry on a conversation you know, with the CEO of, with, of Genesis Works, you know, I just, I was, you know, just much more reserved, kind of quiet, shy, just not, just not very confident in my, in my abilities. Now, this doesn't mean the path is easy. The program is very demanding, and it requires the students to give up a lot of the free time that teenagers typically take for granted. More than that, though, they do it while still carrying the heavy reality of living in low-income conditions. First of all, it's competitive, so mm. people have to apply. I participated in the interviewing process last year, and so one of the students I interviewed, it was, it was an interesting conversation because one of the things that we test for is resiliency. Because as you just said, this is a tough program. These kids are not hanging out at the mall during the summer and during their school year because it's, it's an all-in uh, type of program. And so my question was, tell me about an obstacle that you've had to deal with over the past year and kind of what you've done to overcome it. And, you know, she actually started crying. And, and then she began to share, you know, the, the kind of the challenges that she was going through from a family standpoint. And it was just a reminder that, you know, some of the, some of the things that these students are dealing with are just, you know, you just kind of don't appreciate some of the serious challenges that they are. This idea of pathways thinking is so deeply rooted in Genesis Works that it's part of the founding story. David explained to me how the organization got its start and how it's grown. So Genesis Works started in 2002. The founder, a gentleman by the name of Rafael Alvarez, was in an interesting spot. He was in strategic planning for compact computers. Uh, maybe some of your older listeners will remember compact computers. <laughs> I certainly had one a long time ago. And, but he was also on the board of a charter school in Houston. And, and he saw challenge in, in both worlds. The challenge at Compact Computer was how they were struggling with finding the talent that they needed as they were growing. At that time, they were growing tremendously. Acquiring talent at all levels was, was a real challenge for them. At the same time, being a member of the board of this charter school, he was seeing that students were graduating and, and not being successful afterwards, either in enrolling in college, persisting in college, or if college wasn't their route, having a successful career. And, and you know, Statistically, nationally, it, it bears that out. I mean, right now, there are approximately 6 million jobs that are, that are open 
We know employers have, have challenges finding the talent that they need. And at the same time, we have in our country about 6 million, what I would term opportunity youth, youth that are not engaged in school, that are not engaged in a sustainable wage and where they can support themselves and, and, and their family. And so, you know, you have these two worlds that, that exist. And so what Genesis Works is act as that, is that bridge of helping students in underserved communities be able to have uh, career success. And so he started the organization in 2002 um, in Houston, Texas, was very successful in, in, in this city. Most of the jobs are in the area of technology. Technology tends to be an area where finding talent is, is challenging uh, for a lot of companies, not just technology companies. And so after a number of years in Houston, decided to expand where Genesis Works went to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, opened a very successful program there, and then proceeded probably every other year to open uh, a city. And so it went next to Chicago, then to the Bay Area, then to Washington, D.C. And last year we launched in New York City. That's awesome. Serve just a little less than 4,000 students. Uh, through our training and mentoring and internship program in those six cities. Another thing about hope is that it generates cascading benefits. Acting hopefully, or in other words, using pathways thinking, leads to new opportunities. For Genesis Works students, it often leads to employer-paid college degrees. I'll tell you the ultimate compliment, I think, is that one of the things that we're seeing is that more and more companies, at the end of these internships, are actually going to the student and saying, look, we really like you. We like your work ethic. We pay our employees to further their education. If you want to work and go to school at the same time, we would be interested in having a conversation. And more and more of that is happening where students are staying at the places where they're interning. They're still going to school. We all know about student debt. These are low-income students that you know can't incur that type of debt anyway. And it's it's a very, very cool thing to see. And again, it's kind of a win-win both for the company and particularly for the student. I have so much more to share with you about David's career. This is all just from his current job. But here's the story that really stuck with me for how it summarizes both Genesis works, but also the other important aspect of hope, something Snyder calls agency thinking. Hope means not only seeing the path forward, but believing that we're capable of walking it. One of the first things that we do, and this, this is going to sound odd to some of, some of your listeners, is we actually teach elevator etiquette, right? Mm-hmm. And, and always uh, our offices, for example, in Houston are on the 39th floor of a, of a big building and, in downtown Houston. And, you know, the students that go there for their first day of training, they're, they're taking pictures of, you know, the view from the 39th floor of that building because... It's just something they didn't envision. They've always seen the Houston skyline, right? They never envisioned them being in a place where they would be working in one of those buildings. And it's an amazing transformation. So hope has this power that moves us to action and that leads to growth and opportunity. It's pathways thinking and agency thinking. But what if the future we want is truly out of our control. That's exactly what it feels like for a family where one of their children is seriously ill. Life-threatening disease can come out of nowhere for these families. 
Here's David talking about his time as CEO at the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You know, when that day comes, when, 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 when a parent gets a diagnosis that their child has a life-threatening illness, everybody's world turns up, up, upside down. Parents, obviously the child, siblings, and all the focus is on, you know, is, is our child going to be able to get better? And so I think the unique role that Make-A-Wish plays is typically the last thing that anybody's thinking about is doing something that is what some people would call either, you know, a nice to have or something frivolous. Everybody's first wish is for that child to be better. Granting a wish just brings a lot of joy to a struggling family. There are some amazing, inspiring stories. Do you remember Bat Kid? We'll share some links about him in the show notes, but what happened there was incredible. This is a boy where his wish was to be Batman for a day. And thousands of people in San Francisco turned up to help. You cannot watch this video and not feel hopeful and happy. But what good is hope in the face of life-threatening disease? Medical science takes time, and sadly, advances can come too late for some families. Hope doesn't magically produce treatments or cures. While it may not produce a new treatment, it turns out that hope is a treatment, one that medical science is now beginning to more fully appreciate. I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that a wish experience is actually now becoming part of the treatment protocol, that doctors are seeing the, the positive impact that this kind of an experience can have on a medical outcome, which is honestly amazing yeah. to, to think about. And so the conversation is now becoming much more like, listen, your child has leukemia. You're going to go through 12 months of chemotherapy, or you're going to have six months of radiation, or you're going to have this type of surgery. If your child does everything we tell them to do, you're going to be eligible for a wish experience. And, and that's an experience where you could meet anybody you would want to meet, go anywhere you'd want to go, have anything you'd want to have, or be anything you want to be. And so a child starts thinking about the future and not just the future, but something that they've always wished they could do. And it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful thing. Just how powerful could hope be from a health perspective? Well, in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management in 2018, Dr. Anna Cautry and her co-authors did a review of 12 different randomized control trials that involved what are called psychosocial interventions, things like make-a-wish experiences. They found that these, quote, interventions are effective at reducing anxiety and depressive symptoms, as well as improving quality of life. They also, quote, have a positive impact on physical symptoms and well-being, including a reduction in procedural pain and symptom distress. To illustrate further, another randomized control trial from 2015 in the Journal of Quality of Life Research studied kids being treated for cancer. The children who were granted a wish experience, quote, exhibited a significant reduction in general distress, depression, and anxiety symptoms. These kids also had improved health-related quality of life. The researchers discuss how the anticipation of the wish experience explains much of the benefit. And now for a word from our sponsor. How do you develop your people if they're working remotely? 
It probably feels harder than ever to give them an engaging and valuable learning experience. And building a team means learning together, which can be even harder these days. At Merit Leadership, we have just the thing. Our Leading with Ethics course is a live, online or in-person experience that builds your team's ethical skills and leadership skills together. People overwhelmingly love it because it's engaging, it deepens relationships, and it develops practical skills that people use at work every day. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or visit meritleadership.com. So the research shows that kids who get wish experiences are not only happier, but by multiple measures, they are healthier. David, in fact, has this great story that illustrates the physical power of hope. And I'll tell you just a, a quick story of, of one young man who had a life-threatening condition that involved seizures. And, and he treated at the Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And so, and they couldn't figure out the kind of the, the reason for the seizures, the reason, I mean, he had multiple seizures in the course of every single day. And so anyway, he became eligible for a wish. They figured it out, and, and his, his wish was to meet the basketball player, Chris Paul, who at the time was playing for the San Diego Clippers. And so as the doctor, the, the, Dr. Patel is the, the neurosurgeon who, who treated him, and as he uh, tells a story, there, he's all set to go on his wish, and he goes and has a great time with Chris and, and all things in San Diego. And a couple of weeks later, he comes back and they, Dr. Patel sits down and asks him, so, so tell me how many seizures have you been averaging over the last you know, three, four weeks? And the answer that came back was none. Wow. He had not had a single seizure since his last visit. And, and so Dr. Patel was like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, what in the world are we looking at? And, and it prompted him to do a study of kids at a Children's Hospital in Columbus, those who had received a wish, those who had not, and, and, and what the outcomes were. And it just, and, and again, it showed that, that these wish experiences actually had medical impacts on these, on these patients. This story just illustrates the scientific truth that hope is an effective treatment. It's impressive and even a little surprising, but David pointed out that we shouldn't be surprised. It's now part of the treatment protocol that, and, and that medicine is seeing the value of, of a wish experience, that a wish experience is actually doing something that medicine alone can't do. I mean, we know it from a negative standpoint. We know that you, we can make ourselves sick with worry and anxiety and all those kind of things. We know that impacts our health negatively. We just have a harder time believing when, it, when it's from a positive standpoint, but I, I think it's there. It's not just the sick kids who benefit from the hope that a wish provides. It also helps families stay together. Here's another story about what a granted wish can do. It's one of the defining principles of Make-A-Wish that right from the beginning when the organization started, the principle was this can't just be about the child. It's got to be about the entire family because, because actually the entire family is impacted. And a lot of times you don't realize the impact, for example, on siblings, that all the attention goes on that child. And a lot of times siblings can kind of be pushed off to the side. And that's why the wish experience involves siblings too, that it brings families together. And, and you know, the impact on a mom and a dad, it's 
it's hard on, on any on any spouses that I don't care how good your insurance is, I don't care how strong your marriage is, it is devastating. And so as a result, it's experience to help a family heal. And I mean, I've met parents who who have said, you know, the wish experience, we didn't realize how far apart we were growing. People deal with grief in a lot of different ways and 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 said, look, uh, this Make-A-Wish experience saved my marriage. We literally had a national board member who, it was kind of funny, uh, uh, his son, Brandon, had a wish for to go on a train ride. And the dad was like, seriously? I mean, about the Super Bowl? How about, you know, going to some exotic place? And yet, this train ride, which lasted, you know, I don't know, four or five days, he said what it did was it allowed he and his wife and the family to to just sit and process what had happened to them over the last year and he said you know that wish saved our marriage that we i just didn't realize how we had grown apart and so i i've met brothers and sisters who you know for them it was about seeing their seeing their sibling smile for the first time in 9 months feeling like they got their their brother or sister back And so it's powerful for everybody in the family. I really love that story. And I love how he sees these things that really matter. If it's not obvious by now, David Williams is a remarkable person. Like I said at the beginning, he got his start at the Houston Food Bank, which is currently the largest food bank in the world. But it didn't look anything like that when David started there. He's back in Houston now with Genesis Works after a long time away. And it's fun to hear him remember what it was like at the start of his career path. I bet it feels a little surreal being back to sort of the origins of your career. <laughs> I'll tell you, I thought I was in a Back to the Future movie when I first went out to the Houston Food Bank. So that's the world's largest food bank now. Yeah. And um, oh my goodness. I mean, I you know, when I first started, we could fit the staff of the food bank in my Toyota Tercel. And I don't know if you know if you know what a Tercel is, but <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a small car. <laughs> and now it's 350 employees, and I mean, it's just a massive, massive operation. If, like me, you've wondered how David got started at the Houston Food Bank, I asked him to tell that story. So, you know, I, I grew up in a home where we, we weren't wealthy, but we weren't poor. We never worried about whether I was going to uh, eat uh, a meal. And so when I moved to Houston, Texas and worked for an oil company, I became aware of, of the food bank. And really what I became more aware of was that there were people in the United States of America that actually did worry about having a meal, that did not have enough money to be able to, to ensure that they and their, and their family ate and, and ate well. And I, was, and I was just blown away by that. And so I got involved as a volunteer and, and absolutely loved it. What I saw was how, how powerful it was for, for people to get something as simple as a bag of groceries to, to help feed themselves uh, and their family. And so I, I think I just saw firsthand when people were able to receive something so simple something that I didn't even think about on a daily basis. And the hope that that brought that 
okay, we're going we're to get through this week and we're going to be better off. It, it, was, it was actually very humbling, but a very powerful experience. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, the Houston Food Bank was near the brink of failure when David took over. This was not an easy job. It was really hard. So I had been executive director of the Houston Food Bank for 11 years. We, we took it from uh, a very small organization that had actually been shut down by the city Houston Health Department, kicked out of the National Food Bank Association. We didn't have any food or any money. Uh, other than that, everything was great. Uh, and, but we were able to take that to the fourth largest food bank uh, in the country at the time. And it was, it was hard work, but it was, it was so much fun. Uh, to, very gratifying, I guess that would be the best way to say it. I find it interesting that David here called it gratifying work. Work feeling gratifying is usually something you feel after the fact, not beforehand. And so the question is, what kept David going during those hard years before he got to the gratifying part? Well, it should be obvious by now that David is a very hopeful person. In fact, you might have heard the saying that hope isn't a strategy. Well, it's worth reconsidering that. I'm very fond of, uh, so there's this quote, I'm sure you've heard it many times, hope is not a strategy. I think that was, uh, I think it was Vince Lombardi that said that. And I think that from an organizational standpoint, I think that's true. You know, you don't, if you have a problem, you can't just hope it goes away. Right. Um, you, you need to have a strategy. I will say from a personal standpoint, I would disagree with that. I think, I think hope is one of the most powerful uh, things in the world. And without hope, we, I think we as human beings cease to strive for greatness and for change. And, and a better tomorrow. And so anyway, it's one of the, so Vince Lombardi is still one of my, I, I think he was a, an amazing motivator, amazing leader, was able to get people to do things that they never thought they would be able to do. But that's a quote, you know, I disagree with him a, a little bit on a personal level. So David left the Houston Food Bank after his 11 years there to take on a new and big opportunity as Chief Operating Officer for Habitat for Humanity International. And he needed the personal hope strategy he just described even more during his time there. If the Houston Food Bank meant hard work, well, then Habitat was nonstop. And, but it was a local, you know, it was a local food bank. And the role that I went into was as a chief operating officer of Habitat for Humanity International. We were in 48 countries around the world, 1,200 affiliates just in the United States alone. And I was working for the founder, a very charismatic, Amazing individual, but we had a we had a phrase within Habitat that that Millard had the vision, and I had the nightmare, and <laughs> um, and it was true. It was he had he had ten ideas a day, and 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 the key was to try to find the nugget that was truly brilliant. But you know, when I left eleven years later, instead of being in forty eight countries, we were in a hundred. Went from twelve hundred U.S. affiliates to. I think 1,800. But, you know, we were in 100 countries. He thought we should have been in 200 countries. <laughs> uh, that, it, it was just that kind of mindset. So it was, it was very challenging in every way. The thing that's most striking about David is how he sees himself. He's obviously incredibly successful in his career, but he doesn't consider himself to be anything special. I asked him what he would say to someone who felt like they couldn't really make a difference in the world or have much to offer anyone. 
Listen closely to what he had to say. You know, there are only so many Bill and Melinda Gates uh, foundations out there or Warren Buffett's. It's easy to, to look at any kind of problem and say, well, gosh, is this, is this really solving it? In, in the end, what, what's it, what's it going to do? I, I just think that we're all called to make our world around us better with the, with the talents and the resources that we have. We can't do more than what we're capable of doing. But I think that that's where the richness of life can come in. I think there's a multiplying effect that happens, whether we're aware of it or not. And I just think you have to, you have to believe that. I certainly do. Because, you know, I think that there were people invested in me in different ways that I would like to think I've been able to take and pass on to other people. Some of those people are no longer on this earth. Some of them are, but regardless, they probably don't know that. And, and so I, I, think, I think the short answer is, even when we're just impacting one-to-one, it's more of an impact than we know or we think. That's the kind of hope we can all have, if we'll let ourselves believe it. We all have things to offer, and we never fully appreciate how powerful that can be. The cascading effects of helping one person is the heart of Genesis Works. I asked David what his hope was for the organization. So our, my hope for, with Genesis Works is that we would be able to impact uh, more students uh, across the country. We're only in six cities right now, and, and I believe that every city that has a strong business community has a need for the students that we serve, and that you know every city that size has a, has a population of, of quiet middle students that are not sure about their future, who we as a country need to have engaged in having successful careers. And so we want to be able to have a, have a greater impact. And frankly, you know, to, in a sense, turn it into a movement. We're providing an opportunity. And I, I think every person, I think, deep down in their soul wants to, wants to make a positive impact. And they just don't know how. And I know in my life, the people that have invested in me in, in all kinds of ways. I, I would not be doing what I'm doing today without just a multitude of people who believed in me when maybe I didn't believe in myself, who provided hope when I was feeling pretty hopeless. We all need those types of influences uh, in our life. And so I, I firmly believe that, that Genesis Works is onto something in terms of being that bridge between education and a work experience and being able to, to be able to bridge those two. So that's, that's our hope for Genesis Works going forward. So where does all this hope come from? I think we each find it in our own ways, and we can learn so much from each other. I loved learning from David how he finds hope in all that he does. So the last question is, how has your own hope mattered to you? And how have you maintained it? I guess it's two questions. How have you maintained it? in the face of the big challenges you've tried to tackle over the years? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. You know, for me, for, from, from a hope standpoint, I, I, I certainly rely very much on my faith. I, I believe that that's, um, as, a, as a Christian, uh, this is what got me involved in this work uh, a long time ago. And, and so as, I, as I'm dealing with tough challenges, certainly in in, in the work environment, I realize that I've been, I've been blessed with certain gifts. I think there's a responsibility 
of those who have gifts to be able to use them for the betterment of others. I know that I've had, I've just been, I've been given a lot. And I think to whom a lot has been given, uh, a lot is required. And I think that that's, so I think that there's a responsibility that I, I feel very deeply and it's, it's actually not a burden, even though it might sound like it. I think it's a privilege. And, and frankly, it's a, it's a joy. I think, you know, I think sometimes we, when we look at the people sometimes that we admire as a, as a, as an idea of celebrities, celebrities that have power and fame and money and just everything at their beck and call. And we think, gosh, with all of that, they must be the happiest people on earth. I mean, you're famous, you're rich, you're beautiful, you're, you know, you got the world by, by the tail. Obviously, you must be the happiest person. And, and yet we know that so often, not only are they not the happiest people on earth, I think in some cases, they're the most miserable. They're, they're, they're just, they're not happy, which, which kind of blows our mind. And yet I, I would submit that the happiest people, the most hopeful people, the most joyful people that I've ever known are people that are about, they're not, it's not about themselves. It's, it's about others. They're very other focused and, and they're just through the living, how they live their lives, they impact other people. And I think that, and I've always felt as I've met people like that and, and it really happened early on in my life, which I'm very fortunate for both personally and also from a career standpoint that as I met those people, I, I just, I hoped and prayed to be a person like that. So that's something that I, I, I strive for. I think it's bringing our best self to the workplace and to our personal lives. I hope that this has been time well spent for you. I hope that it's helped you see how to find a path and to help others do the same. And I hope that you've come to better understand the power of hope in our lives. Hope is a vision. Hope is medicine. And hope is how we find a way to do more and to be more and to walk a path that brings us to wonderful places. Many, many thanks to David Williams for taking the time to talk with me. I knew I wanted to talk to David about hope before he even agreed to our interview. Well, it just so happens that David gave a great TEDx talk on this very topic, something I didn't even know until our conversation. We've linked to that in our show notes, and I encourage you to check it out. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast directory of choice. It really means a lot to us, and it helps other people discover it too. Also, please check out the How to Help newsletter. You subscribe to it, and then it shows up in your email inbox once a week. I use it to highlight effective organizations and to share thoughts about how we can have more impact in our lives. Make sure you listen to the next episode with Tyler Schultz. He's one of the principal whistleblowers at Theranos. You probably heard about the company in the news and the massive fraud that they perpetrated against their shareholders and customers. We're going to learn about Tyler's experience at Theranos and everything that he had to go through to do the right thing. We're grateful to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast. And thanks to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. 
Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. And this has been How to Help. Always for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, 